Hey all, welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host. Today we are continuing our conversation about problem plays with a discussion about taming of the shrew. Taming is technically not a problem play, but I think it fits pretty solidly into the definition that it has a controversial plot, um, to say the least. Uh, to join us for our conversation about that today, we have two new guests to the podcast. We have Courtney and Elise with us from the Shakespeare Anyone podcast. Elise, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Elise Sharp. And in addition to co-hosting and producing Shakespeare Anyone, um, I am also a actor. Um, I don't know, what else do we... What other fun facts should we share? <laughs> uh, oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> Anything. What do you like to do with your free time other than acting? <laughs> what free time? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, well, um, I like to read for fun when I can. And I also really love like getting out in nature and hiking and um when but that happens like once or twice a year <laughs> <laughs> true that true that <laughs> well I'm so glad to have you here Elise uh Courtney would you like to introduce yourself yeah uh, my name is Courtney Smith and I am also the other half of Shakespeare Anyone and in addition to podcasting I also am an actor that's how Elise and I met was through uh, a touring production and uh in addition to Acting, I also like to read in my free time when I can. It gets very difficult when we're reading books about early modern England and Shakespeare and picking up a book and looking at text just feels like a lot when you're always looking at text. But I do enjoy it when I have free time. And I also love being out in nature. I just got back a couple weeks ago from Death Valley, mm -hmm. and that was an incredible experience. So I also try to get out as much as I can. Oh, I'm jealous. Well, mm -hmm. welcome to Bulls with the Bard, both of you. Before we dive into talking about the play, I'm going to smoke a bowl. Did y'all bring, I think you guys said something about wine or beer, potentially? Rosé all day. Dirty beer. martini for me. Ooh, wonderful. I love both of those options. Sweet. I wanted a drink with a snack. y'all we are back and ready to talk about taming of the shrew like i said at the top this play technically is not a problem play but of all the plays we're talking about this season that aren't problem plays it might be the one that feels the most like it should be why do y'all think it missed being categorized that way I think that it might not be classified as a problem play because the guy that classified problem plays was probably misogynistic and didn't find any problem in this play. It's not an ambiguous play. We know the opinions of these characters and we have a very clear outcome, but it's very problematic to us because we see this dynamic as incredibly harmful. And I think that 
it might be time for Shakespeare scholars to reclassify these plays because we have new insight. Mm -hmm. And it's probably something that the guy that said, hey, we've got problem plays wasn't really thinking about because problem plays are dark and all of that. And this play mm -hmm. feels very dark when I read it. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Elise, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I would say um, it almost falls under, like if we could create new categories, it almost falls under a category of a problematic play hmm. because the like the definition of the problem plays is they are, you know, things that don't really fit squarely into comedy or tragedy or history. And when this play was like first written, it was titled as a like a true history, like a history, which is super interesting. Hence and the I, induction. In the yeah, hence the induction, which I feel like we might talk about more. Um, I know we're gonna get into that more. And I also like know that this play, it's not been unproblematic from the beginning. Basically, instantly after Shakespeare, there are response plays. Like Fletcher has a play that is a direct response. It is a it's I'd have to look it up, but um the subtitle is like Tamer Tamed. And it's like a sequel where Petruchio, uh, Kate dies, Petruchio remarries, and his new wife basically flips the table on him and does everything that he did to Kate to him to teach him a lesson. And then like Bianca is like super empowered and um, is like a general of like an army of women. <laughs> like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, so like from the get go, this is not like an unproblematic play. So like, I think even in uh Shakespeare's time but I think as we've like gone through history it's gone through people trying to justify it people removing that induction and doing just that like central plot of uh Kate and Petruchio and when we call that a comedy then we're really problematic right <laughs> like yeah because that's not actually funny at all yeah for, especially for us today yeah I'm also thinking if I may at least expand on that that made me think of how history is not always progressive sometimes it's regressive so there may have been eras like the victorian era when this was seen as like a great way to showcase women's roles i also imagine like christian nationalists would really cling on to this play and yeah, like, you know yeah trad wives like the trad wife movement would like 100 yeah. really enjoy some of the messages of that central play mm -hmm. um and like whether or not that was actually meant to be taken as like seriously like this is what like, we're laughing at this because it's funny a woman is getting hurt? Or are we laughing at this because this is not good advice to a guy who's sitting and watching the play? Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, wow. All of that is fascinating. I had never really considered that, like, even in Shakespeare's time, they may have found this to be a little problematic. So I I'm going to have to look into that, like, sequel response. That's <laughs> so cool. Well... I guess while we're talking about the induction, we might as well just like explain it, right? Yeah, let's let's just talk about it now. Yeah, this play has this like introduction that, in a modern context, you I've never seen it. I've I, never seen it. You you neither almost never do, and I almost think that's like a huge mistake. I know uh, Liz Bellows from Opsfest was the first person to kind of like illuminate to me this idea of like this person could be heckling the play the whole mm -hmm. the whole time that it happens mm -hmm. and and yeah. that could give you a new purpose to to do this play so yeah do the two of you want to talk a little bit more about like what yeah. happens with I that can, induction I can take take that away uh because I've been we, 
reading and rereading that that section in particular for our conversation today <laughs> like yes. like i've i've seen this play a few times i've never seen this i need to like get this into my head so basically it starts off this play actually starts with characters who are unrelated to petruchio and kate and all the characters that we know uh there's this guy christopher sly he's a tinker so he's a working class guy and he gets kicked out of a bar for being too drunk and for breaking several dishes and the hostess is like get out of here and he's like you'll rue the day he's a jerk and he falls asleep drunk and this uh unnamed lord wealthy dude comes across him and is like this guy's passed out drunk let's like play a trick on him like my servants like i want to play a trick on him this will be hilarious and he dresses christopher sly up as a lord and the plot is like when this guy wakes up we're gonna pretend that he's he's a lord and he's been asleep for 15 years and he doesn't remember anything and then we're gonna get this page to this like young boy to dress up as his wife and we're gonna convince this drunk guy that like his entire life's been a dream and that and it's like, also this is very real. it's also very reminiscent to me of the dark room scene in 12th night because mm-hmm. the other the other like device that these plotters use is calling him crazy or talking about how he was a lunatic and that's why he didn't remember the past 15 years mm-hmm. uh, so i just picked yeah. up on that one's like oh great ableism yeah. again yeah um so he like wakes up presumably very hungover and is like dressed in finery and the lord is pretending to be a servant and meanwhile these like players arrive to like a traveling acting company much like we see in hamlet arrives and uh the lord is like okay play this play for this guy we're pretending he's a lord and then they're like just like oh you know oh sir oh christopher sly like you're you've been asleep for 15 years like you're in such a bad way like you're just so you've been just so depressed and like we were so worried about you and so we're gonna play this play for you to like help like cheer you up and like help bring you back to life because you've just woken up and like maybe this will jog your memory and like remember like remind you how to like treat your again fake wife (laughs) and then the play that the players do is the play that we know as taming of the shrew and there's actually like a little bit in act one scene one that some editors move to the end of the induction where sly does interject and like the first scene of taming the shrew ends and then uh sly and the page have like a little conversation where the page is like, do you like, like, what are, what are your thoughts about the play? And Sly's like, eh, it's fine. Like, let's keep watching because Sly also has never seen a play. Like uh. that's a, that's a fun fact about him. He's like, oh, is this like a, like a Christmas show or like a tumbling act or a comedy? And they're like, no, no, it's a history. <laughs> and <laughs> so like this sets up a, a performative quality to all that's happening inside of the plot that we know of Taming of the Shrew. Like, this is a play being put on specifically for a guy who's a jerk. Who's never seen a yeah. Who has never seen a play before and who were just making fun like we are actively like kind of making fun of this guy and what a jerk he is. It adds just like this whole new layer to a mm-hmm. play that I feel like most people think they know what it's about or or what is supposed to be said with it. Yeah. I want to see it explored more. Like, if we're going yeah. to keep doing this play, right. I want to see it explored more. <laughs> also, yeah. 
also get this there is a different text that slightly predates so the only like authoritative version of taming of the shrew that we have is from the first folio and then subsequent folios um but there is an earlier published anonymous play called the taming of a shrew that we don't know we have no like scholars have no idea and it's very debated whether this is a source for shakespeare whether it is shakespeare basically coming in and like doctoring the script that already existed or whether it is shakespeare wrote that it got published anonymously anonymously like the bad quarters of hamlet and then the authoritative version is the taming of the shrew a shrew has more scenes of christopher sly interspersed throughout the action and there are there's like more differences than similarities honestly but the similarities that are there are like chunks of text that are the same i think very similar to like when you talk about like bad quarter of hamlet and like what's different and what's not it's like possibly comparable to um them sharing maybe a similar source text or this being an early version of taming of the shrew that we know and have feelings about huh i would love to see like the bits of that with christopher slide just like weaved into the play mm-hmm. that we know now because i feel like his disappearance is part of the reason they justify not including right this like yeah, yeah. yeah. i also when I got to the end of Shrew, I completely forgot that Christopher Sly was involved. So mm-hmm. it would be cool, especially I think one of you mentioned the idea of heckling, kind of like mm-hmm. a Midsummer Night's Dream. And I don't know what Sly says, but whatever, like that dialogue might support in a lens, you know. Mm-hmm. So, And in a Shrew, Christopher Sly actually has like the final scenes. We don't end with that like... <laughs> that struggle of a scene with Kate's long speech that causes a lot of like I think the problems with this play of like how does this character make make this turn we don't see that um why what is motivating this um and Christopher Sly basically at the end of a shrew watches all that happen and is like ah I know how to like deal with my wife back home I'm gonna and then he like goes back to his like tinker life but everyone is like we just gave him such bad advice, y'all. Like, this is hilarious. Like, he's going to be in so much trouble, like, when he gets which home. Is, like, which is really funny because Hortensio and Lucentio's last lines are advising the audience. They go off and, you know, mm-hmm. name your wife. So that's a very yeah. different ending for the audience. Yeah. Ooh. Wow. That is fascinating and I think jumping off of that why don't we uh talk about that speech a little bit uh (laughs) (laughs) Catherine has this just awful speech at the end of this play that if you do it the way that it's written ends with her like literally kneeling at the feet Mm -hmm. of Petruchio and encouraging the other women on stage to do the same for their husbands and I think in a modern context, the sort of justified continuing to do this play, people try to make it like a a tongue-in-cheek thing or mm-hmm. a, like she doesn't actually believe what she's saying or there's a joke or she's in on there. some bit. And... She's in on the bet. Yeah. Yeah. And like, does does that work? Can that happen? <laughs> like, Yeah. I think, I, one, I don't know. 
I I've never been like satisfied when I see that scene done. Um, even with a little like wink, like the Elizabeth Taylor film has a little like, which she she like ends it with a winked Petruchio, and it's like ah, oh, there she's in on this. And I think it's still really tough to hear that language for a modern audience. One thing that's interesting about that speech is that she delivers part of it to the wealthy widow, and she uses like thee and thy. Um to speak direct so she's not speaking to like a general there's no way to like misinterpret a you as like to general like she's very much speaking directly to the richest woman in padua Hmm. and she's saying things like so your husband who's hortensio who has been like oh well like i lost bianca i'm just gonna marry for money now i don't really care um i was really only in it for the money and he's like penal he's like not wealthy and she's saying to this to the richest woman in Padua, like, so you have to like now be servant to your husband, and he's now the head of the house. You widow you, not anyone else. And I think that that's something that I don't see a lot of like this of like maybe there's something tongue in cheek there. Again, like as a modern audience member, am I going to get that this woman who I've never met until like the final act is the wealthiest woman? in Padua like I have never really felt like that was clear when I'm sitting in the audience yeah I also find it very difficult to believe that it's tongue-in-cheek or that she's in on the on the bet when we don't get language cluing us into that because Mm -hmm. so many other characters will have asides with other characters and they'll let us know what's going on so that we understand but Mm -hmm. that's not present and so I'm not saying it can't be done well. I'm just saying I don't know how well you can really do that with the text itself because we don't get any indication that Kate is in on it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I just watched the RSC did a production in 2019 and we'll get to this. It's gender swapped, but they seemed to try to sprinkle a little bit of this throughout the play, this idea that like, Maybe she's in on the bit. Maybe she actually likes this somehow. And I struggled with it so hard because it was all in looks. It was all Mm -hmm. in like moments where Catherine would suddenly have like a dreamy, oh, I'm enjoying whatever it is you're saying Mm -hmm. or doing in this moment. But then the instant that character would open their mouth again, it it was the opposite of that look. It, it was denying anything that that look was trying to convince us was happening. I want that interpretation to work so badly, but it, I just feel like it doesn't for, for that exact reason. Kevin mm-hmm. never gets to say she's in on it. So no. Yeah. yeah. In fact, she says so little between like her marriage to Petruchio and that scene. Like one thing that I don't see is and i i have no idea if this would like quote unquote make it work and i'm using air quotes because like i don't think that scene works great no matter probably what we do right but you know from the moment she marries petruchio we kind of start seeing a different kate like all we hear about kate is that she is so rude and so mean and such a shrew and we see like we hear about examples of it. We don't actually see a lot of it unless an actor and a director have chosen to like overshow us that she is a shrew. We get that she like smashes the loot, like and that this music lesson goes terribly. But then when we actually see her like in Petruchio's house, that's not the person we see. We see somebody who like 
it's like who's going it's fine like we don't need to be jerks to our servants which like was very much like the order of like you can abuse your servants um was quite normal in early modern england so we see like we don't really see this like shrewd and like the things that patricia says about her are you were called you know kate the cursed and that's all hearsay it's not actually his experience with her and so we don't re- so i also wonder well, it- if we played kate differently the mm-hmm. entire time then what would it look like in that final scene yeah and from my experience i saw the globes 2012 shrew and playing it genuine also just adds so much tension into the into the theater and Mm-hmm. I, I I think I respect the idea that we honor the intense displays of misogyny because what it can do is it can be a learning point for people about women's experience, like with domestic violence in a way. But I also, I mean, it's supposed to be a comedy, so I don't really know how you can play the two. I don't know if that argument makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I just think that it's it's very difficult to try to like put in all of this domestic abuse and then go... Like, ha ha, ha, ha. She, she is in on this victimhood. And the, guess what? The advice at the end of the play is go tame your shrew just like this. And Kate is in on it. It's like a, I don't know if a, a pick me girl or a, you know, like a woman who is, I, <laughs> it, just, it just seems like she's, she's kind of like, if we, if we make her like wink, wink, nudge nudge she's like that one woman in the handmaid's tale who is like benefiting from other women's abuse or the abuse of other women and so i just don't know if that's even a good message considering all of the things about like women's struggles no i i completely agree with everything both of you just said like oh uh, yeah i i wish it worked but it didn't and or it doesn't and Speaking of ideas like that, the other idea that I feel like I see thrown out a lot about producing this play is like, okay, well, let's just gender swap it then. Like that's gonna that's gonna fix the problem. That's gonna illuminate what we want to illuminate and erase anything else that we don't want to deal with. And having just watched a production that's like that, I've got some thoughts, but I we'll turn it over to y'all first like why why do you think maybe that does or does not work i'll let courtney go first because i've got some strong thoughts <laughs> okay i don't think it works and i've never seen it done but i i know that i don't like the idea of subjugating anyone and so i don't really know if it even I don't know what kind of message you get when you just swap the genders and then you let men be violently abused by women. I think that depending on how it's done, and this is an asterisk saying, depending on how it's done, maybe it can shed light on what women have endured with the patriarchy. But also, I, I don't know how much I trust a lot of theater makers to do that mindfully and thoughtfully mm-hmm. and really... I, I just don't have a lot of trust in that. So I guess my my answer is I don't think it's effective. I've never seen it done, but I feel like it's not really addressing problems of like solidarity between genders and sexes. It's more like, I don't know, it's a bit of a distraction or something like that. It's just, 
I don't know if those are the right words I'm trying to use that I'm you know using, but I think it's just it's not really effective because it's it's probably more damaging than it is helpful because I don't want I don't know mm-hmm. I just don't want to I just don't want to see anyone being violently abused and maybe maybe it could be done as a cautionary tale and through changing swapping the genders you could at least like distance the history but I don't I don't really trust that that would really work because it's it's difficult to like do Mm -hmm. kind of subversive stuff like that agreed Elise so I don't think gender swapping is subversive in Shakespeare at all (laughs) because often we end up playing these characters as we, we play these characters as they're written and how often I know cakes like you are like playing a character that is written to be a man right now I was thinking about it um leading up to this and knowing you were going to ask this question and I was like I think at this point in my career I've played more of Shakespeare's men than I've played Shakespeare's women and I don't think that swapping genders makes that big of a difference in the actual how we tell the story because also these plays were written for a company of all men and so they were also cross-gender casting in a way in a very reductive way to phrase that um so it's something that happens all the time and it isn't a solution the solution that it provides is we have a talented actor who can play this part well and i say that because oftentimes cross-gender casting ignores gender in Mm. its casting that's really what we're doing is saying we're going to cast the best actor for this and it doesn't actually say well what if this character is a woman what if this character is a man it doesn't go further than well we cast people of opposite genders Something mm-hmm. I am interested in is taking that idea further in instead of cross-gender casting, making this a play about the performance of gender and kind of going back to that layer that Christopher Sly and the induction add to this play of like this entire thing is performance. This entire thing is an extreme and it is camp almost. And I am aware of at least one production that has done this. I have not seen it, these productions, but I've heard of them where it is not just cross-gender, but is also cross-gender in drag and Mm. drag performance being a heightened performance of gender what does Mm -hmm. that bring to these roles instead of just like swapping and then not really using it to comment does that make sense yeah absolutely absolutely oh that would be fascinating and yeah I think having just watched a gender swapped production I resonate with both of what you just said like it worked to a point I felt like at the beginning there was kind of an interesting observation of almost like the the smaller characters uh Mm -hmm. and seeing women play men in power who are dealing with like marriage in this way that was an interesting commentary on like gender and all of that But then you get to like the point where Petruchio is starving Kate. Mm -hmm. And it's like this exactly what you said, Courtney. It's like, I don't want to see this happen to anybody. Right. Because it does happen to everybody. Mm -hmm. We don't see it talked about as much or see it talked about as much as being an issue that happens to men. Mm -hmm. But it does happen to men too. So I I don't want to see that flipped on its head. Mm Mm-hmm. Elise, did you have something you wanted to add? To oh that? no, I was just like, I was just like, yes, like intimate partner yeah. violence is intimate partner violence. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it, it crosses genders already. And I think when I talk about like what happens if we make this drag, what happens if we make this like high camp? 
the thing that in that like I'm interested in then is what does that scene become about gender roles and become about like the idea of toxic masculinity because if we're not I think approaching that scene as like this is an example of talk like extreme toxic masculinity and approaching it as a scene of abuse and we're not if we're not being like abuse is bad and ridiculous like that's what satire does is it takes something that is bad and makes it into something that is ridiculous and therefore diminishes being like you're not cool if you do this Mm. if you do this you're not cool like if you align yourself with this if you feel like this is the way to treat somebody you are worth laughing at instead of the situation is worth laughing at right like that's what satire can do if it's done well and i don't think we can achieve satire in this play at all if we are not thinking about that scene first Mm. And I don't think also like I don't think this is worth like making satire at all. Like, it, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, just to say out loud, like, but, but if you're gonna brave if you're turning gonna... this into satire, right? Putting it. like putting up a mirror, but also heightening it to the point that it distances it from the reality and turns it mm-hmm. into something that's I don't know I don't know if cautionary is the right word, but something that's like don't do this, you idiot. And maybe like I like the idea too. You say at least of like adding Christopher Sly and throughout mm-hmm. to remind the audience that they're watching a performance you know and maybe they'll have reactions kind of like mid well not necessarily like midsummer because they're heckling the actors but maybe this idea that we're reminding everyone through interspersed bits of criticism mm-hmm. through um, a lens of reaction to it yeah a of lens like, of this reaction. is the play that we are presenting it's like this is a play that's being presented to someone and here's how and they have opinions other... and they have opinions and we are also being informed by their opinions on it It'd also be interesting, like, how involved is the Lord? Is he inserting himself? Is he also watching? Um, And can we kind of see him for, like, how we should react to this? But he has no lines, so I don't know. I love that. He gestures very frantically or something. (laughs) Like, he's like, like, he's like, just like, cut it off. Nope, nope, Try to get the, like, um, vaudeville (laughs) hook to pull Mm -hmm. him off stage. Yeah, I I was saying to my partner, I was like, what if this entire thing is just like a bad improv? Like, and it just goes in one direction. And they're like, all right, wrap this up. Like, yikes. Mm-hmm. Um, just a yeah. series of bad yes ands. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> yikes. All right. Well, before we ask our big bad final question, I know y'all did some research about humoral theory coming into this and I'm very interested to hear what you've brought to the table about like what that is and how it might apply to this play uh so humoral theory is a medical I use air quotes it's a medical science that the early modern people used to explain our bodies our minds and our temperaments and it's divided up into these four humors you're either sanguine. Well, the four humors are blood, phlegm, choler, and melancholy. So if you have too much blood in your body, you are sanguine. If you will have too much phlegm, then you are phlegmatic. If you have too much choler, then you are choleric. And if you have too much black bile, you are melancholy. And the goal of early modern people was to balance their humors out. And this play is in many ways a study of humoral therapy which was men and women plants uh animals everyone had their actual like had a specific humoral temperament that they were supposed to embody so men are allowed to be sanguine or choleric 
and women are supposed to be phlegmatic and no one should really be melancholic because that's sad. But if you're a scholar, you're probably melancholic, which is, you know, we see Hamlet as being melancholic and, you know, he thinks too much. He overanalyzes all of that. And in Taming of the Shrew, this is a, a note for anybody who wants to learn more about this. There's this great lecture from Dr. Gail Kern Pastor on the four humors in early modern England, as well as specifically in Shrew. And essentially, both Petruchio and Kate are both choleric characters. They both have too much yellow bile. They're hot and dry, which makes them argumentative, ill-tempered. And it's acceptable for a male to be choleric, but it is not acceptable for a woman to be choleric. So in this play, we see a choleric man taming a choleric woman into becoming a phlegmatic woman. And one of the cool things about when we were doing all of this research for one of our mini episodes is how language signifies the embodiments of the temperaments, the four humors in early modern characters, in Shakespeare characters. So you can really like look through the language and start to notice this character is sanguine because they are described this way. They use this kind of language. This character is phlegmatic, choleric, melancholic. So through our research, we just found all of these indicators of the fact that this play in many ways can be also looked at through the lens of humoral therapy. And Elise, mm-hmm. do you have anything you want to add to yeah. that? Yeah, I would say um, I'll, I'll get specific because that was a great like overview of like, what is this and like, how does it relate to taming? Petruchio actually says multiple times in that scene that we're just in the problematic scene that we're just talking about, where in today's language, we are like, this is abuse. He's starving her. He is like denying her sleep, like like he is violating the Geneva Convention on so many levels. He doesn't just say like, we're not going to eat this beef because I'm a jerk. He's like, we're both too choleric and it's burnt. And that is bad for like, because that's another thing that like the four humors talk about is like in humoral therapy, there's certain things that like that will increase certain humors and certain things that will decrease certain humors. So you might like get a medicine that's specifically for like curing melancholia or yeah, if you are like way too choleric, which Petruchio says both he and Kate are, you won't eat burned meat or mustard. Um, speci- specifically hot mustard. It can't yeah, be specifically hot. hot mustard. Like you hot won't foods are do not these good things. for the choleric. So, like that piece specifically is Petruchio telling Kate, like we're trying to heal, like balance out our humors because we're both too much of this. We both got too much, and Christopher Sly. The whole reason that the company is, in theory, putting on this play, what they tell him in the prank they're putting on him is that he is melancholic, which is why he slept for 15 years, right? Like he was so depressed. So they've got to cheer. That was a really common like cure for melancholy was like, let's take you to a comedy and show you a play, even though they also say like, oh, no, it's not a comedy. It's a history. But they're like trying to maybe like trick the melancholy into like because he might be resistant to it if he knows what they're trying to do. In Hamlet, when he's melancholic or everyone thinks he's melancholic, they're like, hey, Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, cheer him up. There are players. We're having a play. And that was because he has too much melancholy and they're trying to take that too much, you know, black bile out of him and uh, balance him out. Wow, that's so interesting. I feel like if you go to any iteration of like Shakespeare school, they'll give you like a little drop of this information, but they don't. (laughs) ever like tell you how it applies more broadly (laughs) to these plays 
that is so interesting and I mean I don't know how much like it's helpful for <laughs> producing it on stage but it's yes. still so interesting to like know that background I was watching and the the bit about the mustard today and was like what is this <laughs> like so it's nice to have that context that's that's super cool yeah. for me it also like brings up the question of like like you said it doesn't solve the problems of producing it today right like but when we can contextualize it and like a well for Shakespeare's audience was this maybe even not just like making fun of the idea of taming a shrewish wife but um was it also maybe like tongue-in-cheek being like this like humoral therapy thing like we're doing this like what was it saying about that because it's very heavily laid in here and I bring up like that idea of like to an early modern audience like what did this say about taming a wife and there was kind of like like we were talking about there are these two people who are more traditional are probably gonna be like yes this says the right things and then people who are not are going to be like no this is terrible there's this quote from a contemporary of Shakespeare's named Sir John Harrington, who is one of Courtney's favorite <laughs> Elizabethan courtiers. I love um, him with all my heart. Fun fact, yes, he is related to um, Jon Snow, Kit Harrington. Second of all, he did inv he invented the flush toilet. Yes. Um, huh? he, is, <laughs> he pops up everywhere in our research. I know. But he's, he has this quote of like, here's how you tame a shrew. Like, there's two things that you do. You don't let them do anything. You let them do everything. The first one is like works in theory. The second one works in reality. And I'm paraphrasing there, but it's like the first one should be what works. The second one, that's what works. <laughs> that's so interesting. That literally reminds me of like dealing with a toddler. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you could like, you could try a million ways of disciplining or you could just let them burn the energy out. You just don't try to tame your wife. Like, you can try, but it's not going to work. Like, well, she's your wife. <laughs> and it's funny you say that, too, because in humoral, humoral theory, uh, both women and children are supposed to be phlegmatic. So essentially, like, on the social ladder, like, they are paired together. Like, how do you uh, deal with them? They are paired together. So they cry a lot. They cry a lot. They're yeah. heavily emotional. That's, like, mm -hmm. phlegmatic. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And I, I don't know exactly how in this particular play, like that would really make much of a difference. But I do think reading Shakespeare's plays, if you're figuring out how to like figure out what motivates this character or what kind of temperament they're in, seeing those words as signifiers can be quite helpful for an actor because you're not trying to like solve what this weird phrase means. It's like, oh no, this is because mm -hmm. in this time, this is the early modern equivalent to this, you know? Like this I is think the early... it can be quite useful. You know, I think it's really common in cakes you said, like Shakespeare school, right? Like it's really common to be like Shakespeare didn't give subtext. And it's like, but he did give a lot of clues. And this is like one set of them. And sometimes the answer is just like, they're feeling this way. That's it. Yeah. Like, and it was also popular medical like advice for the time mm -hmm. period. Like everyone was clued and it was like, it was just something that they understood. So it's, you know... It may be very foreign to us, but to an early modern audience, they go, oh, I know exactly what that means. I know what it means when this character mm -hmm. comes in. And, you know, for us, it'd be like, oh, someone coughs into a napkin. They have the consumption. You know, it's it's similar to that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, and I could I could definitely see how, like, if you're the actor playing uh, Petruchio, 
knowing all of this would be inc- incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Thank you both for bringing in that research. I appreciate that so much. So it- before we uh, wrap this baby up, my last question about this play is like, do we still need to be doing it? <laughs> no, that's that's my that's my official stance. I think it's worth like studying, right? But certain plays of Shakespeare's that are worth studying more than they are worth producing. And there are certain plays that are worth producing that are not produced nearly as much as they should be. Mm-hmm. And ones that are worth studying that are way more interesting to study um, than they are to see on stage. Yeah, yeah. I I recorded the intro to this season last night. And as I was talking about why I wanted to do this, I was like, well, because we have like these five or six plays that are actually categorized as problem plays. And of them, like four of them are plays that people never do because they're just like scary to put on a stage, but they would be fascinating to explore in a 2023 context. And then we have these other plays that we don't categorize as problem plays that for some reason get produced a lot that maybe aren't as worth exploring anymore. Yeah. 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 And and you also, I also think theater makers have to consider why am I putting this play on? And if the answer is just because people will come see it, that's not a very good answer. Mm-hmm. Amen. I actually think that's like the perfect place to wrap up this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, this episode is going to drop, I believe, the third week of May. I'm ridiculously ahead of things right now. Um, but do either of you have like projects you know of that you would like to plug that are coming up for you? I don't think any, except just listen to our Midsummer Nights, a Midsummer Nights Dream series. Listen to all the episodes we've, you know, done in our other series. We've got Macbeth, Twelfth Night, King Lear, Hamlet. Yeah, we're wrapping up a Midsummer Night's Dream. So there's so many interesting things that we've uncovered. And I highly recommend anyone who's especially interested in like the historicism we've got some really neat episodes especially in our midsummer series yeah and if you're interested in more of like the four humors and learning what we're talking about today we mentioned it briefly but we have a mini episode on that i don't think i have anything else that i can like definitively say that by may i will know i can announce so (laughs) well uh (laughs) if if by then you have anything new i'll uh add it in the show notes and we'll add links and such but thank you both so much for doing this as both of you just said y'all should go out and listen to Shakespeare anyone it's amazing these two humans do crazy fantastic research and are so smart and add so much value to the Shakespeare community with their podcast so please go give them your support if you're listening right now yeah thank you both so much for being on the show i was thrilled that you both agreed to come on i adore the work that y'all do yeah so we're wrapping up for right now thanks y'all for listening yeah thank you so nice thank you for having us it was so nice to like cut loose (laughs) yeah if you enjoyed today's episode you can follow courtney elise the shakespeare anyone podcast and bulls with the bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description If you're new to the podcast or you just haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps Bulls with the Bard to grow. 
And tune in next week as we talk with Kai Tawil Morsink and Emily Sucher about Twelfth Night through the lens of a problem play. Until then, bye y'all. A thousand thousand sides to save all. Lay me where sad true lover never find my grave to weep there.